that's always been a core of Apex is try to kind of build ahead of the storm. And I can say pretty unequivocally, we hit sort of a terminal threshold for some of the problems of trust on the internet over the past year. It's only going to accelerate from here. But we, we've always been trying to get ahead of two problems at once. One is the very specific commodity market infrastructure problems, but also the IT infrastructure problems. And, and I think we're really at the end of a, about a five-year build in both and really looking forward to getting some of those solutions into market early next year. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome to our Smarter Markets Holiday Special 2023. I'm Dave Grilly, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Josh Crum, founder and CEO of Abex Technologies. He's joined by our colleagues Dan McElduff, Joe Rea, and Ian Forrester. We'll be discussing where we are now and what's next on our mission to create the market infrastructure and financial technology needed to build smarter markets. Hello, Josh. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hi, Dave. You know, it's becoming a tradition here on Smarter Markets to sit down with you at the end of each year to discuss where we've been and where we're going in this journey to build Smarter Markets. And I'm glad to sit down again with you this year and be joined by three of our colleagues, Dan McElduff, Joe Rea, and Ian Forrester. And this is a really wonderful group to discuss the role of market infrastructure and financial technology in building Smarter Markets. But before we bring everyone else into the conversation, Josh, I was hoping you could help start us off by just taking a step back and sharing your thoughts on what are smarter markets, why do we need them, and where are we right now in this journey to build them? Thanks, Dave, and thanks for pulling this together. I also look forward to making this an annual tradition, both a reflection on the year past and some ideas for the, for the year ahead. And as you know, uh, smarter markets is not an outcome. It's not a solution. Smarter markets is, is a question. It's a never-ending journey to improve market infrastructure and improve information and coordination because we all share the belief that the best way to solve problems is, is through markets, not heavy top-down central planning, but the open sourcing of, of ideas and, and not just ideas in a, in a narrative sense, but how that translates to people putting skin in the game and how that affects price, volume, and volatility. We think market infrastructure always needs to be improved. So when we think about smarter markets in the ABEX context, and as you know, this is not a podcast that's supposed to be about any single company, but again, about that idea and about the network of clients and investors and market ecosystem participants that are part of ABEX and, and our, our vision of smarter markets. So I, I think we can talk about a little bit of some of the things that are happening in our primary objective of, of smarter markets, things that are happening in the macro sense, inside or outside of ABEX. And of course, we can talk a little about some of the milestones and some of the some of the goals for what Abex is doing specifically in our little piece of this market world. So happy to talk about both this year. One way that I also maybe maybe can kick it off. A lot of people ask about the name Abex itself. <laughs> what you know? What what is Abex? And and why why are you why are you called Abex? 
I guess as an engineer and, and a little bit of a, of a history nerd, I essentially look at ABEX, the ABEX, as, as sort of the first calculator, if you, if you will, or the first computer or planning tool. So an ABEX was, was really just a sand table, it was sort of the predecessor of the abacus, where students would sit around and make calculations and make plans on, on really a table of sand. And a lot of times we think about that also in the military planning context. I think we're all familiar seeing in movies, you know, people drawing battle plans in a sand table. And really, that's, that's kind of how I think about ABEX as well. We do have a very long horizon, a very big goal. It's really about this idea of decommoditizing commodities in many ways. Our view is that the only way that we can really attract the capital needed to solve these very big problems in commodity infrastructure investment, we need more granular prices. We need people that are doing things better to be paid more for their commodities. Now, that's a hard challenge because to some extent, we also rely on commodities from a fungibility perspective to attract the liquidity and the price discovery and scale. So it is a hard problem. How do we decommoditize? Well, keeping a lot of the the benefits of consolidated liquidity and and fungibility. So that's the hard problem, long problem that we're we're ever focused on. And that really takes kind of, as we've always said, the sort of three areas that ABEX has been investing in. One is the core market infrastructure, regulated exchange and clearinghouse, where we're able to develop new products with the industry and really just add another, uh, another venue to try new things and, and work on new, new contracts. Part of the role of an entrepreneur or a challenger is, is to challenge the, the great companies that are out there. The great companies like ICE and CME and, and the Singapore Exchange and the, the London Metals Exchange. We want to add new competition, new products, but also push the entire market forward. So that, that's sort of one, one leg of the stool, if you will. The other is, is really investing in cutting edge information technology. And a lot of the revolutions that are happening in artificial intelligence and generative AI, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. But broadly, I'd, I'd call that bucket trust infrastructure, beyond the market infrastructure, really the IT trust infrastructure and the investments that we're making there. And then, of course, the third is smarter markets itself, right? You know, continuing to expand the, again, the open sourcing of big ideas and big challenges and all of that that entails. So. Anyways, I'm sure we can reflect on, on all of these uh, pieces and, and framing as we go, but maybe I'll turn it back to yourself. Well, I really appreciate that because I think that's a great way to think about it with the three legs of the stool. So I'd like to kind of bring the other fellas into the conversation to talk about some of those legs. Obviously, on the exchange and clearinghouse side, the, the first big piece of market infrastructure, ABEX Commodities Futures Exchange and Clearinghouse in Singapore received its RMO and ACH licenses from the Monetary Authority of Singapore on December 7th. That's a big milestone in the journey to make smarter markets having a licensed exchange and clearinghouse. And to put that in perspective, I don't think there's been a newly licensed futures exchange and clearinghouse in commodities in well over a decade. So it makes it part of a very small club and a big milestone. And Dan and Joe, you've been a big part of that piece of the journey. And so I'd like to bring you in to talk a little bit about what comes next. An exchange and clearinghouse certainly doesn't exist on its own. It doesn't succeed on its own. As Josh was saying, it's part of a much larger ecosystem consisting of traders, brokers, clearing members that are all necessary to work together to build smarter markets. And I know, Joe, you had had to help build that ecosystem when you were at Clearport and launching Clearport. What did you learn from that experience about the role of 
all these participants that, that they play in launching new markets and building that ever important liquidity. And what role are they playing with your next steps at Abex? Yeah, thanks, Dave. It's it's an important part of the foundation and the build of of the markets that we're seeking to change and to and to bring better innovation, which clearly from what we keep on hearing from the marketplace is lacking right now in the marketplace. So I think that the difference between what we did then and what we're doing now is that we started this from the ground up, right? We were, we were fortunate back in the day of the early days of the OTC clearing platform, which wasn't even called Clearport for probably a year after we launched it, in that, that we had a clearinghouse that, that, that existed. It was involved in energy markets and metals markets. It had clearing members associated with it. It had all a lot of the infrastructure that you know, you'd sometimes take for granted that we had to engage with here, even given our relationships that we had in the marketplace, which helped that. But still, you're still engaging it from the ground up. And to, to your point of something not being licensed in over a decade, I would argue that one hasn't been built from the ground up in more than that period of time. So that aside, you know, the hard work is is building it, getting the investment in to, to sustain us for over four and a half years, and also to come up with products that the market needs. And so I think, you know, in the very beginnings of this, the products that we've looked at in the LNG markets, which then led to carbon, which then led to nickel sulfate, all are we're addressing inadequacies in the marketplace right now that we're seeking to solve for. So it really starts with with that. It starts with building um, the relationships or, or grabbing the relationships that we had in the past, both from the clearing side, whether it's clearing members or brokers, and then ultimately, most importantly, the traders that will help bring liquidity to the exchange and to the clearinghouse that will help solve that risk management piece. They're not going to come trade here because they like me or Dan or, or Josh or anybody else. They're going to come here because we're, we're solving for an issue in risk management that they have, just like back in the day when we built the OTC clearing platform and which ultimately became Clearport, right? That was after Enron defaulted. So we, there was a distinct need in the marketplace for an exchange structure, a clearinghouse risk management structure to take all these over-the-counter products that didn't exist on exchange at all, on a kind of futures exchange, and bring them into the clearinghouse and use those risk management tools of the clearinghouse to, to help counterparties manage each other's risk with the, so that the marketplace can, can continue to grow. And so I think we're taking a lot of those lessons that we learned back then, but yet we're building something completely new, completely different that really is, uh, is going to really service the marketplace in a lot better way than for these products that don't exist right now. And Joe, you, you spend a lot of time in shoe leather, you know, kind of putting these groups together. And I, I think your relationships and experience go a heck of a long way. In addition to the work, I think it also takes a lot of enthusiasm to get diverse groups of people to want to work together on something new, something hard. Where do you see the enthusiasm coming from in the conversations that you have, whether it's clearing members, traders, brokers? I think the enthusiasm comes from the products first, right? So we didn't build these products that we're going to launch with in a vacuum or in a closet somewhere. You know, we engage with the marketplace from day one to really find out what was missing. What's, you know, what's changing in the marketplace? Why hasn't there been a physical LNG futures contract that, that reflects the waterboard molecule? Why hasn't that happened? And the marketplace has changed in its structure, right? It went from a term contract marketplace in LNG to now a lot of optimization of term contracts in addition to spot market. So, you know, that, that's really where the enthusiasm is coming from in LNG markets. In carbon markets, it's the same thing. You know, there's, there's a product there that maybe isn't a, a designed the right way. So how can we design something that's going to be better servicing the marketplace? The clearing members that, you know, are always very skeptical and very conservative. 
once we got our licenses, you know, they kept telling us they were going to come and, and be part of it, but you really never know until they fill out the application and submit it to us. And so by getting applications from, from clearing members, that, that's, that's a definitive statement that they're with us and they want to help build their business. They want to go through the efforts of getting all the internal approvals, which believe me, is not easy to get tied up to a new clearinghouse and an exchange. So that, that really is a, is a major statement that I think is a, is a, is a point of enthusiasm, not from me, but from them, that they see that their customers need our tools for better risk management in the marketplace. Glad to hear there's enthusiasm for smarter markets. There sure is. And Dan, you were instrumental with Joe in launching Clearport, but you know, I want to ask you about a different thing, which was, you know, you were at NYMEX during the early days of the Henry Hub natural gas futures contract. And as an economist, now people look at Henry Hub and see it as like a textbook example of what a large liquid competitive market looks like. But it wasn't always that way. And I think you were around back when it most definitely wasn't that way. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how did the Henry Hub market grow from its launch to what it is today? And how does that experience inform how you see the the ABEX futures markets and, as Joe said, LNG, carbon and nickel sulfate developing in the period after launch? When I started my career at NYMEX, uh, Henry Hub was nine months old. And like any emerging market, it was characterized by participation from commercial players, the design structure that, that NYMEX always put into place that we also at ABEX will put into place is to focus on uh, physically delivered futures contracts that will assure convergence in, um, in pricing. So it's logical that in the early days, the commercial players are there. What was striking then was that both producers and consumers and intermediaries, the trading companies, were represented from the early days. And that's, that's a good indication of the commercial need for a product to serve price discovery and hedging functions. The liquidity served those participants amongst each other, but was only able to improve when new parties came in. And liquidity begets liquidity. We hear that throughout our industry in every sector. And the fact that those early participants used a product that they became comfortable with that was effective and, you know, in the event that they did take it to delivery and use it for more than hedging and price discovery, that gave people more confidence to come into the market, including participants who didn't want or, or need to or were even able to take on delivery risk. And they're the liquidity providers that in the beginning stages, it's back in those days, it was floor traders who would come in and buy and sell all day and provide liquidity that was never apparent to natural gas commercial players. And that extended to professional traders all the way up through very sophisticated hedge funds. And the more the liquidity grew, the greater the depth and diversity of the market in those categories, um, you know, to the point where it's accessible for almost anybody willing to invest and or to hedge in that marketplace. So the in the early stages and across the first 10 years, all classes, you know, were represented at some point as the market grew and people became more comfortable with liquidity. And then, of course, it, it just took a bigger and more important place in the economy, both in North America and if not the world, as it grew. And up to the present day, and where you know it's um, seen as somewhat of a model. So, Dan, how does your experience with the the growth of the Henry Hub market inform how you're thinking about the likely development of the ABEX futures markets and LNG, carbon, and nickel sulfate after launch? So, our our ABEX product slate has solid parallels to the the Henry Hub experience. Um, if you consider the emerging commercial need for hedging and, and price discovery in the LNG, carbon, and battery metals markets. It's, it's apparent 
there is a very solid number of and, and depth of level of participation in those markets. And, um, and each of them, you know, as we've been on this journey, is the need has grown significantly over time. The products are also, you know, they're similar with respect to the depth, the diversity, the enthusiasm of the participants. They, in some cases, like in the case of, of battery metals, they came to us. And that just establishes very clearly that there's a commercial need to serve. The thing that we have to do, and this is something that the NYMEX did, is that we, we have to recognize emerging commercial needs and adapt to them. So an example of where Henry Hub ended up, when the effort was underway, the first delivery location was a place called the KD Interchange. And it really wasn't a solution that could be adapted to commercial needs where buyers and sellers could be brought together in an efficient way. And just by being persistent and, and having a finger on the pulse of, of commercial needs in the emerging natural gas industry, NAMIX was, was able to recognize an opportunity in, in infrastructure and service provision that necessitated the change over to the Henry Hub. So we have to learn from that lesson and, and apply the same. You know, we think we're, you know, the solutions that we have um, that we want to introduce at launch are very much in line with commercial practice, but we always have to have our, our head on the swivel to continue to meet commercial needs as they emerge and evolve. And I think that those lessons, um, if we look at the product silos that we're looking at, LNG, carbon, and nickel, I would say that they're, from a maturity perspective, LNG is a bit more advanced in its market practices. So applying this um, this principle is going to be uh, really important in the case of carbon and nickel. Carbon, simply because the definition of quality is something that's been elusive. And at the baseline level is, you know, carbon offset, something that can and should be considered in somebody mitigating uh, emissions. You know, we've got to get through that debate. And with that set, we have to go even further in determining what qualifies as a useful solution in, in the drive towards net zero. And quality is the key element of, you know, how carbon markets are going to to operate and distinguish themselves. And in the case of nickel, the nickel market is quite old. The, the, the battery metal use of nickel is, is quite new. And, and that's, you know, from a maturity perspective, there's two reasons. One, that, you know, nickel sulfate is important and is indeed a, an emerging market. One of them is, you know, the battery use case. Our economies around the world are being electrified or we're going to the electrification of, of our energy grids and battery metals and other metals and building out the network are going to be so important. And that use case is growing every day. And the velocity of that and the, and the forecast for it are, are enormous. So while delivery of nickel sulfate is a simple thing, right? It comes in bags and containers on ships. That's a simple part. What's not simple is that the distribution lines are changing dramatically because of national security interests and the desire for, uh, for nations to be able to onshore some capacity so that they can meet their goals for their citizens. So we, we have to be very aligned with the, the practices there so that if a change in, in a contract term is necessitated because of the patterns that are evolving there in this emerging market, we're, we're positioned well to do that. Yeah, it's such a great point because it's these are such dynamic and changing and in some cases new markets that success isn't about having the perfect plan. It's about being responsive when the situation changes and the plan needs to be rewritten or when the shortcomings of the plan are revealed by the marketplace. I think as uh, Mike Tyson who said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And so <laughs> maybe I can turn to Joe. Not talking about getting punched in the face, but how do you build that responsiveness 
into the process, into working with all the other participants who are going to have to also be responsive as markets evolve and, and situations change? I think it's through interaction, Dave. I think it's through knowing who your customer is, knowing who to reach out to. I think the success that we had back in, uh, it wasn't linear. It was certainly, there was a lot of ups and downs back in our days and building Clearport was based on the total interaction with the marketplace and, and spending a lot of time with customers understanding what their needs are. And that's no different here at all. It's whether, whether it's the three verticals that we're going to launch with or even the products that we know will be coming down the road. The more interaction you have with the marketplace, the more inbounds you get for new ideas and new products. We've seen it already just in our, our short lifespan here at Abex as far as the, the interaction with working groups, with FCMs, with brokers, with trading firms across all three asset classes. As Dan mentioned, you know, be the firm that came to us uh, to help develop the nickel sulfate market, we weren't their first call, right? They went to others first and the other guys just didn't see it as an important part of their model to help the marketplace with a new product. And we saw it as an eagerly, certainly as an upstart and a new exchange and new kid on the block. It was an opportunity for us to, to show that we understood how to build markets, how to interact with customers and bring these new tools and technologies to what they need. I, I would also say sometimes it's important to, to continue to focus on that long horizon, particularly in markets. You know, we're very, very attuned to looking at the liquidity or the problems or the trades right, right in front of us. And so maybe, maybe we miss building new markets because we're not really looking what life could look like five years from now, 10 years from now. And that, that has been a problem that we've, we've seen or has been told to us by our customers. There are some of the problems with some of the other exchanges is they're not really innovating on those, those long horizons for, for products. We heard some feedback from, from, you know, one of the, one of the commodity exchanges that they weren't sure if there's a need for a, for a nickel sulfate market. Which first off, the customers came to us, so we, we have a pretty strong uh, understanding of, of the need. But also, I mean, you, you just look at the electrification needs—not just today, but five, ten years from now. That nickel sulfate, that battery nickel, you know, supply chain market is going to be dramatically larger. And you know, and we even you know got some of that information, you know, coming out of COP this year, positioning natural gas and LNG as an important transition fuel, but also just the needs to remove coal from the marketplace. So maybe just to, again, focusing on the horizon, let me you know, read out a, a couple of statistics here. At the end of the day, demographics you know, drives all in economics. And so reading across East Asia, Southeast Asia, Tokyo, 39 million people, coal, 25% of the grid. That's the most advanced of, of getting rid of coal. Jakarta, 34 million people, coal, 62%. Delhi, 32 million people, coal, 80%. Seoul, 26 million people, coal, 40%. Shanghai, 25 million people, coal, 62%. Manila, 24 million people, coal, 47%. And 14 other Asian coal-powered cities of, of greater than 10 million people. So when you hear some of the rhetoric out of here in Canada, you know, British Columbia and Alberta, we don't know if there's a strong business case for LNG. Well, that's a population of 10 million people between uh, Alberta so I would say demographics of most of Asia still powered on coal is a very, very big long horizon for you know, needing more LNG physical infrastructure, more LNG market infrastructure. So for us, that's the kind of horizon that, that defines it and is, is one survey assessment, illiquid survey assessment of the price broadly of LNG in Asia. Is that market infrastructure? Not at all. So our view is keep that horizon 
focus on the demographics, focus on those first principles and the needs for these products. I think the same thing with the lithium market. It's very rare to see a market growing 20% a year for more than a decade. That's going to happen in the lithium market. So again, is one illiquid survey assessment going to set the price of, of global lithium? It just doesn't make any sense. So we need to focus on, on trying new things and, and building new products and evolving because it's inevitable that these markets need to, to progress if we're going to actually take those large, just one of those cities to get them off of coal is an enormous task. All of Asia, it's impossible without better markets. I'd like to turn back to you, Dan. Josh has rightly pointed out the need to focus on the long-term horizon and the, the massive need that's out there, social need, commercial need for these markets. How do we go from where we are now to that long horizon? How do we think about that scaling up of going from start to hopefully a, a long horizon finish? Yeah, well, we've discussed the importance of depth and diversity in the market. We've discussed the importance of tapping that enthusiasm to create the community where, where folks are interacting in this marketplace and um, the capacity for markets to adapt to these principles and use of these tools has advanced through time. I think back to you know the Henry Hub experience, there were probably hundreds of people that were schooled in the practice of market risk management in the commodity space. And of course, over 30 years, that number has grown dramatically. If it's not in tens of thousands, it's certainly in the thousands. So that's another reason for enthusiasm from our perspective, because people can take those lessons learned. They can take the principles that are now part of curriculums in, in colleges and advanced studies and, and apply them and help improve the velocity of, of the use of these markets to, to get us to necessary levels of price discovery, necessary levels of the ability to mitigate and transfer risk, and really the necessary levels of liquidity so people can achieve their business goals you know, in serving these markets. And I wanted to turn to you next, Ian, because as we talk about building smarter markets and the products and the infrastructure, that also requires a great deal of technology. And under the hood of the exchange and clearinghouse is leading edge financial technology. It isn't often that any business, let alone an exchange and clearinghouse, gets a clean slate for building its tech stack. Typically, businesses are encumbered with the legacy of what came before and how much do you want to change? And we've all gone through that. So I wanted to ask you, what were some of the key aspects and features that you wanted to see built into that tech stack to make it ready for a smarter markets future? Sure. And uh, thanks, Dave. And thanks for, for having me on the pod. The real key is the use of distributed systems. And I think this expresses itself in two ways in terms of our, our tech stack. And really, you know, I think none of this is able to happen without the forward-thinking stance on responsible innovation from our regulator, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. You know, distributed systems for markets and, and market infrastructure makes a lot of sense. Markets themselves are distributed systems and use the distributed intelligence of market participants to discover the price of an asset or a commodity. So the, the core principles between that distribution of markets and distributed computing architecture are are highly congruent. And the first way this, this expresses itself is in the use of clustered compute to build the exchange and clearinghouse rather than the, the legacy technology. Because you're right, Dave, tech debt is, is real and it's a, it can absolutely just leave you stuck in the mud. The use of clustered compute really improves our resilience and greatly lowers our mean time to recovery, which is a a core measure of any system's resilience. 
and makes it much harder for advanced persistent threats or, you know, we call them APTs, like the lockbed attack that ION suffered to gain a foothold in the system. The nature of clustered applications is, you know, you have less downtime because the workload, the computing that's done is abstracted away from any single machine. And this lowers the cost to effectively zero to move that workload to a new machine whenever a problem pops up. It's kind of like when you call tech support, you know, your computer's not working. And first question they ask you is always, well, you know, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? The cluster lets us do that without interrupting the flow of the markets for both exchange and clearing and makes it much harder for APTs to gain a foothold as, you know, the environment is constantly being reset while it's running. I think the the second part, the second aspect of distributed systems is the integration of the ID++ trust fabric into the trade entry stack for block trades and EFRPs, especially given the impact we anticipate that ID++ can have in the bilateral commodities markets, the spot markets that, that Joe referred to. I'll, I'll leave it to the, my expert colleagues in terms of why bridging to bilateral markets is accretive to the futures business. But in terms of how we build that bridge, our number one concern has got to be that we do it in a way that preserves the privacy and agency that are, are so essential to these markets continuing to function as they currently do. That privacy and agency, you know, allowing that really runs counter to how the internet and particularly SaaS platforms are organized. Currently, the incentives are such that platforms and developers are almost forced to give up user privacy to preserve the operation of the platform at scale. These markets that we're serving are of such consequence that the risk of adopting tools that could covertly undermine the formation of price discovery is too great. So current best practice remains the use of expensive, high-friction infrastructure that nobody likes. I mean, this is how these markets are currently running. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the only available option for maintaining trust. Trust is the basis of all transactions, but it, it comes at a high cost. If we can lower that cost, you know, you make transactions cheap and you probably get more of them and uh, more transactions are probably better for everyone. And I'd love to use that as a, a transition back to you, Josh, in that you know, I feel like often, even on the podcast, there's this sense of many folks of like, well, you can either talk about markets or you can talk about technology, but it's hard to talk about both. But in your mind and in your smarter markets approach, you've always seen technology and markets as as intertwined with one another. And like they're two legs of your three-legged stool. And so I wanted to ask you, why is using technology to protect identity and privacy and create trust, that second leg of the stool, why is that so important for your smarter markets vision? Yeah. Well, I think about commodities and markets the same same way as information in, in, in many ways. And so that theme of of trust that Ian just touched on, just like any other market that's in a supplier demand deficit, markets and and innovations come in to balance the market. And I think it was readily apparent to myself and and many others as much as 10 years ago, but certainly the last few years, that I guess our, our institutions are increasingly running at sort of a trust deficit. And I actually think that, that that comes back to some of the, you know, some of the fundamental problems of some of our internet IT infrastructure. But that, that said, I, I, I do think that the way financial markets have handled trust, the way that it's distributed and you create all these separations of, of agency and conflict, I think our, our securities industry overall has done a great job on both the IT side as well as the business practice side of created trusted systems. And so some of the problems that we see in a broader consumer internet sense 
I think haven't probably until recently maybe affected the financial markets as well because they had such robust business infrastructure for maintaining trust. But where I think that, that that's becoming a problem is just the speed of, of the way these markets are, are moving globally, as well as something else that Ian touched on, this data infrastructure and the efficiencies you get by centralizing data, whether it's a, a B2B or a consumer sort of SaaS application, or if it's market infrastructure. Data in all one place can be a good thing, but depending on the technologies, increasingly that, that can also be a problem, right? When, when people don't want to share quotes because they feel like they're doing business in front of a two-sided mirror, to use one of Ian's uh, analogies that he al- allowed me to borrow, that is a problem. And I think, I think our minds can't even get our head around some of the, some of the things that are going to happen as a result of generative AI. And the fact that these centralized data models, as much business trust architecture as you can put in place, it's going to disrupt things sort of incalculably at this, at this point. So I think, you know, we always kind of had that vision that, you know, we, we needed to really go down to the first principles and, and really, really think about trust infrastructure, both from a business infrastructure and, and workflow, as well as, you know, the actual IT systems that, that support that. That's always been a core of ABEX is trying to kind of build ahead of the storm. And I can say pretty unequivocally, we hit sort of a terminal threshold for some of the problems of trust on the internet over the past year. It's only going to accelerate from here. But we, we've always been trying to get ahead of two problems at once. One is the very specific commodity market infrastructure problems, but also the IT infrastructure problems. And, and I think we're really at the end of a, about a five-year build in both and really looking forward to getting some of those solutions into market early next year. We hope you enjoyed this first half of our special holiday conversation with Josh Crum, founder and CEO of ABEX Technologies, and our colleagues, Dan McElduff, Joe Rea, and Ian Forrester. We'll continue the conversation next week in part two. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABEX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. 
Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.